It's a good week to continue the war on box score analysis. Let's talk some Chiefs, guys. Welcome to the Chief of the North podcast, the land of 10,000 takes. I am your host, Minnesota Chiefs fan, or Seth Kaiser, and I owe all of you an apology. We did not have an episode last week, and many of you reached out, and your cries of desperation did not go unheard. Here's what happened. I woke up Sunday morning, and as many of you know, I'm also a pastor, in addition to the whole lawyer thing, which I know the jokes write themselves. I wake up Sunday morning, and my computer will not turn on, which was kind of funny because I hadn't printed out my sermon yet, and so, you know white hot panic it was crazy so apparently my my hard drive was in pre-failure is what the IT guy said I don't know I just gave him money and he 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 hooked me up with uh another different kind of hard drive see as you can tell some kind of anyway it's one without moving parts I don't remember what it's called solid state yes and my computer is running better than ever they saved the data all my lawyer stuff and pastor stuff and chief stuff was saved but anyway that's what happened I'm sorry you didn't get an episode of the chief of the north last week so this week we're going to have an extra long show with a couple of breaks kind of go a little more to back in the day how I used to do things Um, And so that's to try to make it up to you that I wasn't here last week. And again, I'm very sorry about that. It was completely out of my hands. But I'm excited to do this episode because it's a continuation of a project that has been long in coming. I'm going to continue the war against box score analysis. Before we get into that, a housekeeping thing. Not really a housekeeping thing, but just a reminder for those of you who don't listen to the Arrowhead Pride podcast or the the draft podcast show that Kent's. Swanson does. You guys are really missing out. It's it's cool stuff. Um, the Arrowhead Pride podcast is on Wednesdays, and that's the blog father, Joel Thorman, and Pete Sweeney, who is apparently just taking over KC Media. He just got a job at 610 now as well. And then, of course, former Chiefs inside linebacker Sean Barber. They put on a great show. It's a very different tone than what I have, um, and it, it's really good stuff. And then on Fridays, especially with the draft coming up, Kent Swanson and Jake Stack, who's an old friend of mine, they put on a great show about the draft. And a lot of you ask me draft questions those are the guys to listen to seriously um, you you can find uh, you can find Kent on Twitter you can find their their show if you look on Arrowhead Pride every Friday it drops they do a great great job and you should definitely listen to what they do so that said it's on to the really important stuff box score analysis and why it's slowly destroying America well I don't know that might be an exaggeration but I have declared a war on box score analysis well what do I mean by box score analysis? And I can, you know, I, I started this like a month ago with quarterbacks. And then we got distracted by a bunch of Chiefs news because I want to stay up to date on that stuff. And now we're back. What do I mean by box score analysis? What I mean and what I don't mean are important to understand here. When I'm talking about whether or not someone's using box score analysis, I'm talking about the idea of gauging how a player did in one game or in multiple games even, you know, throughout the course of maybe even a whole season based on basic box score stats. So like with quarterbacks, total yards, um, even completion percentage or quarterback rating or touchdowns. That is a terrible way to gauge a quarterback even over the course of one whole season. Uh, Now today, we're going to be moving on to edge rushers. So with edge rushers, people talk about sacks and tackles. Those are the two big things that they use. And again, over the course of one game, two games, three games, even a full season, it's a terrible way to gauge an edge rusher. It's just awful. It's not accurate at all. Now, if you go over the course of five, six seasons, or even two or three seasons, the more numbers you have, the better off you are. So if you've got a quarterback who has a high quarterback rating for five years in a row, that tells you something about that quarterback for sure. If you've got a guy who multiple years in a row has nine plus, 10 plus sacks, that tells you something about him. But the problem is people want to take those cumulative box score analysis things, which really only tell you something after three or four years, maybe. That was a weird noise, but anyway... They want to take that and apply it over the course of one game. And you see it all the time. You know, you got one person saying, oh, you know, man, he didn't have a very good game. 
And you can say, I don't know, I thought he had a pretty good game. Oh, no, he didn't even have any sacks. And it's like, well, that that's not, oh, no, no, numbers don't lie. And people want to use that to gauge one game, two games, three games, and it's a terrible way to do it because there's just too much context that can be applied. Now, again, you can look a, a couple episodes ago on the Chief of the North, and I wrote an article about it on Arrowhead Pride, the, uh, the, the idea of doing that with quarterbacks. So that's already out there. This, now we're talking about edge rushers, which I would argue is the second most important position in the NFL. NFL besides quarterbacks. You know the people who throw the ball and the people who try to stop people from throwing the ball. And so let's let's get right to it. Um, like I said, people use generally speaking, sacks and tackles to gauge edge rushers. And I understand why. A sack is one of the most productive, important plays in the NFL because generally speaking, it means you lose, you know, seven or eight yards at least and you lose a down. It's an incredibly productive play. Uh, it, it matters. It generates points and potential points. So that's a really important play. Tackles, you know, that's that's just what people use. People have been using it for years. I actually got into it with someone who had told me that Daniel Soren is a good player because he led the Chiefs in tackles last year. I disagreed, bada, bada, bada. We argued it was all well and good. But people like to use tackles to gauge them. And again, there are problems with this. And so what I want to do today, I want to talk about the problems with box score analysis like this. I want to tell you what you miss when you use this. And then I want to talk about some be- some better stats that you could potentially use. Um, and some some things that might actually tell you a little bit more about a player, even without turning on tape. Because I understand not everyone has 10 hours to turn on tape. Um, I don't really either, but my wife is super patient. So and then I also want to talk about some things that you can look for on tape. Not necessarily on tape, but when you're watching a game live. If you want to keep an eye on an edge rusher for a while, there are a few things that you can watch out for. I'm also going to include from this, um, uh, I, I spoke with John Ledyard, um, at Ledyard NFL Draft. If you don't follow him on Twitter, he's a great source for football analysis, knows the game backward and forward. He was kind enough to offer me up some thoughts on those three questions. You know, you know what you miss um, you know what you what 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 you can potentially look for, whether there's any stats you can look at, or and then what people can look at from home when they're watching. So we're gonna get into John's quotes in the last part of this, as he uh, as he had some really good stuff to say. Again, uh, you know if you don't follow John on Twitter, you are definitely definitely missing out. And then because we're a supersized episode, we're gonna close out with a mailbag. So let's get into this. All right, what are you missing? You know, I, I sit here and I say, oh, box scores are box scores terrible way to judge a player. What do you miss when you use let's let's start with sacks, okay? Well, the problem is you are not seeing context. You are not seeing what actually happened in a play. So here I'm gonna start off with a hypothetical situation here. And I've talked about this before, but today we're gonna go really in depth on it. So let's say you've got a situation, you've got two edge rushers, you know, you got a guy rushing from the right, rushing from the left. The, the, it's a third down situation. The ball is snapped. One of the edge rushers will say, let's, you know, just for the sake of, of ease, we're going to use Houston and, and D Ford, okay? They're rushing from opposite edges. Uh, and that just means I don't have to use edge rusher A and edge rusher B. Let's say Houston is matched up against an upper tier right tackle while D Ford is up against a guy who's generally known to be below average. In the meantime, Houston also has a tight end chip him on his way out on a route, you know, provide a, a quick shove to help the right tackle out. Let's say Ford is one-on-one against this guy, this this left tackle, okay? So that's a scenario we've got right now. Quarterback drops back to pass. Let's say, hypothetically, Houston, despite the chip, manages to, to beat his guy. Let's say it's with a long arm or, you know, a, this, a stab and swipe. Whatever it is, he beats his guy quickly and applies pressure to the quarterback. The quarterback, seeing this, rolls left. In the meantime, let's say that D. Ford has been completely stonewalled. I'm not trying to pick on D. Ford here because Ford is actually a pretty good pass rusher, but for the sake of the scenario, D Ford gets completely stonewalled and is basically just standing there in place while he can't move around his tackle. However, the quarterback's rolling left and because the left tackle doesn't see that, Ford is able to disengage, right? And move to the outside where the quarterback essentially runs into him and Ford collects the sack. Now I think you're starting to see the problem here and I think all of us as as fans we intuitively know that there's an issue here but we 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 forget when we look at numbers later on. 
D Ford did not make a plus football play there. That's what John Ledyard he 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 separates high quality sacks from regular ones because he D Ford didn't do anything there. He actually had a minus football play. He got stonewalled, but because Justin Houston made a great football play, D Ford collects a sack, and that's what you have to pay attention to because on the box score. It shows that D. Ford made a plus football play, and Justin Houston didn't do anything. And now, here's here's what your your someone could say to that is, well, you know that happens to everyone, so over time it corrects. Over time, yes, but you need to think of how small the numbers are when you're talking about football. Guys are maybe rushing the passer 30, 40 times a game. That's not a large amount of times, and for for it to even out, you need hundreds of snaps for that kind of thing to even out. Maybe more depending on the context and the situation. And so that's why even over the course of a full season, sometimes you have guys that really kind of luck their way into a half dozen sacks or so, and then they have three or four high-quality ones, and hey, wow, they had 10 sacks that season. They look like a really good pass rusher. But in reality, part of it was luck. That's why you need to have much bigger numbers, and that's why looking at one game doesn't tell you anything. It's the context of the play. You don't know a really what happened and then it also doesn't take into account like I talked about strength of opponent you know whether or not they were up against a good player whether they're just beating up on a bad player not there's anything wrong with beating up on a bad player that's what good players are supposed to do but again context matters it matters what direction the quarterback rolled it matters how long the quarterback held onto the ball if a quarterback wrongly holds onto the ball for five seconds while sitting there like a duck in the pocket and a, a, a rusher eventually gets to him after five or six seconds, he didn't really make a great football play there because no offensive lineman is supposed to be able to block someone for five or six seconds. That's just not how the passing game works. The The rusher has the advantage in that situation. And so that's what you miss with regards to sacks. You are missing what happened, what actually happened on the play all right and then in addition to that and because again context matters and again this is if you're trying to evaluate a player that's what i assume that when someone's trying to tell me whether they think a player is good whether they think a player is bad i assume that what they're trying to do is actually evaluate the player's ability and project towards what he might be able to do in the future Right Now, that's a tough thing to do, even if you watch film. It's tough to project what a guy might do in the future. But my point is, if you're trying to evaluate the player, you need to evaluate what he actually did. And by just counting the sacks, you're not doing that. All you're doing is counting a number. And in our little hypothetical situation, you see how that can go wrong. There's another problem with just counting sacks is it doesn't take into account plays where you make a good football play and as I just referenced earlier, you chase someone else into a sack. What about plays where no one gets a sack? What about plays where the quarterback is rushed into a bad throw? Uh, an example of this is an interception that Phillip Rivers threw near the end of the, I think it was the second Chiefs-Chargers game. Uh, yeah, I'm almost certain it was the second one. When it was still a relatively close game, late in the game, uh, the Chiefs had pretty firm control, but it wasn't over yet. Justin Houston made a great rush against the right tackle. Just a faked inside and just completely fooled him. It was funny, um, until I slowed it down upon rewatching. I thought the right tackle just like did made a horrible mistake off the snap and didn't try to block Houston because it really looks like that. He beat him so badly. But when you slow it down, you see that Houston deked him out by faking inside. It was beautiful. Then sw- slapped his hands away and was just on Rivers almost as soon as he got the ball. So Rivers releases the ball as Houston hits him. Because he's getting hit by, you know, a monster of a human being as he throws the ball. And let's face it, Philip Rivers' arm is kind of a duck arm anyway. The ball floated in the air. Easy pick for Ron Parker. And that essentially was what really ended that game. It just, it was over from there on out. The Chiefs scored on the following possession, if I'm remembering correctly. Here's the thing, though. No sack. That is a non-sack play. It's wildly impactful because Ron Parker, he's the one who collects the stat there, right? Whereas Parker didn't really, he didn't make a football play that anyone couldn't have made. I could have caught that ball. Now, there's a lot of other things I couldn't have done, but I could have caught that ball. Literally any defensive back in the NFL, including you know the very last guy on the roster, and most any defensive back in college should catch that ball. 
And so you you have to ask yourself, who made the football play there? Well, Justin Houston did, but it doesn't count on the stat sheet. And those are the things you miss. Context. You miss what actually happened on the field when you're counting sacks. And so you just don't understand. All you know is what happened on 11 or 12 plays. And you don't even know what really happened there. You know that he collected a stat, but you don't know how. Did someone else run him into it? Did he beat a double team and make a great play? You don't know. And then on plays like that one, where he created a turnover with a great play, he collects nothing. There is nothing that's credited to him if you're just counting sacks. Obviously, that's a big deal. The, the key thing that I want you to think about here as we close in on our on our first break is value above replacement. Now, that's a term that Football Outsiders uses a lot, and I'm not talking about that in a statistical sense. I'm talking about value above replacement in the sense of what did a player do that another average player probably couldn't have done? So anytime I watch a guy on film, that's what I'm thinking to myself. Now, you need to watch quite a few guys to maybe get an idea of what's average in the NFL. But it's very doable if you just pay attention. You uh, it, Once you pay attention, you can see what average guys can do and what, what average guys can't do. And so the idea is value above replacement. You want a guy who is consistently doing things that your average player couldn't do. And if a guy makes a play that an average player could make, that's great, but it doesn't tell you anything amazing about him. So I want that's what I want you to focus all of this around. Value above replacement. That's what both of those hypotheticals had to do with. In our first one, D4 didn't do anything that an average player couldn't have done, or even a bad player. In our second hypothetical, Ron Parker didn't do anything that an average player or a bad player couldn't have done. In both plays, Justin Houston, in our hypothetical end in the play that actually happened, Justin Houston did do something that an average player couldn't do, at least consistently, and he got no credit for it. So that's the problem with counting sacks. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to move into why tackles are a really poor way to gauge an edge rusher as well. So we're going to get into that right after this. All right. We're talking about the war on box score analysis. We are talking about why it's a terrible, terrible idea. And just to give you guys a fair warning, my four-year-old daughter just wandered into the room. And so you might get a a guest appearance by her here shortly. We'll see what happens. So here's where we're at. We just talked about why sacks don't work. And I talked a little bit about value above replacement. Okay. So we're going to talk about something similar in terms of tackles and why tackles are a bad way to gauge a player as well. I would argue maybe even a worse way than sacks. So tackles, it's a similar its a similar situation in that when you count a tackle, you don't see what happened. You don't see the context of the play. And so I actually, if you follow me on Twitter, you can look and I, I actually tweeted something out the other day showing two plays where Justin Houston made a tackle. Okay, so on the stat sheet, it shows up as a solo tackle. On the stat sheet, they are identical plays. In one play, Houston was blocked fairly well on the edge. He was kind of held. Well, he was really held. And then, you know, it didn't get called. And so he he tried to flow towards the running back. The running back gained the edge. But because a corner made a really nice play, the running back cut back inside right into Houston's arm. Five-yard gain, solo tackle for Houston. Then I showed a second play where uh, Asameli, the mammoth guard for the Raiders, was actually pulling and try- had a head of steam to block Houston, and Houston just stonewalls him, gets low, and just blasts him out of the way, and, and then makes a solo tackle on the running back for a two-yard loss. On paper, on paper, those plays are identical. But you and me both know intuitively when you watch those plays, one, you didn't react to it all. You were like, oh, man, five-yard gain. The second one, you were like, whoa, Justin Houston, holy smokes. And that reaction is us intuitively understanding what play had a high value above replacement. What play was incredibly impressive. But on the stat sheet, they're the same. And that's, those are, that's an extreme example. But when you're just counting tackles... All every play is the same. It doesn't matter whether he just manages to chase down a running back who got caught up in the defense 20 yards down the field or whether he blows up a play for a five-yard loss after beating a couple of blockers. That's the first problem with using tackles is that you treat all tackles the same. 
and they are not. They are absolutely not. Here's the second problem with just counting tackles. And this is similar to the problem that comes with sacks. And so again, we're talking about similar issues, but I really want to delve into each one of these. There are plays where a player doesn't make a tackle that are very, very good football plays. And if you are only counting tackles, you don't see them. That box score analysis, it just doesn't do it. And there's actually on my Twitter feed, it's not a, it's not a video clip I made. It was a video clip uh, Ben Fennel made. Sorry, Ben, if I, if I mispronounce your name there. Uh, not that you listened to the Chief in the North, but in case you did, um, he, he made a clip of Clay Matthews beating three blockers on the edge. It was a thing of beauty. Beat them one at a time, just one, two, three, three blockers on the edge to set the very edge and force the running back to stay cut inside. And then another defender came and did his job because, you know, Matthews had already taken on three blockers and finished the play. That player collected the tackle, but Clay Matthews made an unbelievably good play. One of the best edge plays I've ever seen in run defense. And he collected absolutely no sack, or no, no sack, no tackle, no stat whatsoever. Those are the things that you miss out on when you're relying on box score analysis. It's, I would say... You can maybe tell more about a quarterback with box score analysis than you can an edge rusher. And that's saying something because I hate box score analysis with quarterbacks. And again, with tackles, well, here's, here's the real issue with tackles as well. Tackles don't necessarily regulate over time the way sacks do. A guy could collect, you know, say on edge, he can collect 60, 70 tackles year in and year out, and you have no idea whether he's doing well. At least with sacks, if a guy is hitting between 10 to 15 sacks a year, you know that he's doing well because not many players can do that year in and year out. And so those are the those are the problems with taking those things into account. And uh, so when I asked John, uh, John Ledyard, like I said, I referenced him before, at Ledyard NFL Draft, really sharp guy. I said, you know, what is the number one most important thing people miss out on when they use sacks tackles to gauge edge rushers? And what John said, and I love this, John focuses on a lot of things through viewing college players, and he does a lot of work in the draft. And this is what he says, you miss sustainable production. Logic tells me that a player is more likely to sustain production long term if he has a clearly defined way or ways that he wins as a pass rusher, especially in one-on-one situations, rather than achieving sacks due to an unblocked situation or a quarterback moving into his lap. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. And John just, he put it so succinctly. We're looking for sustainable production. We want to see if a player can win. Is he winning on his own? And if you see him doing that, that allows you to say, okay, that's sustainable. That's a great word that John uses there. That's sustainable production. If a guy is just getting lucky, that is not sustainable. It will not continue. Eventually, guys, there are guys that really have lucked their way into eight to 15 sack seasons. And then, you know, people wonder why the next year he only had like three. Now, on the flip side, there's guys who have had, you know, bad luck and had a season like Tom Bahali, for example, because of the context. I remember there was a year where he had like just a couple sacks way back when. It's like, oh man, what happened to Tomba? Well, no, he was just surrounded by nobody. He had no help on defense and then when the defense changed up and Houston came around and he got some help suddenly he was a monster again and it's not that Tom Bahali forgot how to rush the passer if there was any example on how counting sacks in a full year doesn't tell you about a player Tom Bahali is a great example of that look at his career stats year by year and you'll see the variance there and a lot of that is luck so that's a great quote from from John. And then the second question I asked John is, are there any stats or combination of stats that you think are more reliable that people can use? Now, John responded, not really. If you're consistently putting up big sack numbers every year in the NFL, you're clearly talented. In college scouting, there really isn't a shortcut for watching the tape. I agree with John with regards to college production. There's really no shortcut for watching the tape. And the problem with college football is there's so much variance in the in you know what type of offenses you're playing, the talent level, the the tackles you're facing, that makes it extremely difficult. And so I agree with John with regards to that. However, I don't want to leave you with no hope whatsoever for things that are a little bit quicker. Because again, not everyone has time to sit down and watch the tape. I understand that. This is my job, so I make time for it, right? But I understand if it's not your job, why you wouldn't. And so there are a few things that I think are more Uh, They point more towards sustainability, to use John's word, which again, 
great word. And so the first one that I would use rather than than sacks is pressures. Now that's actually come a lot more into the into the forefront of people's minds over the last couple of years because of the work Pro Football Focus does. Now again, I'm not saying Pro Football Focus is gospel. I do think they've really refined their process over the last couple of years talking to some of their analysts. Um, and I I think I trust what they do a lot more now than I did like three years ago because they've really added a lot of good minds to the team and a couple of the guys that I interact with on a daily basis um, they, they, they're sharp and they know the game and they seem to really have set up a process that allows them to to regulate the results which is good for them they're, they're another set of informed opinions so well, here's what I would say. They count pressures and they actually wrote, a, there was a really good article that was written about the fact that pressures are more indicative of, of future sacks than sacks. It's the craziest thing. But intuitively, when you think about it, pressures are telling you what the player is actually doing. How often is the player pressuring the quarterback? Now, it's not perfect because a guy might get a pressure because he's unblocked. He might get a pressure because the offensive lineman had his shoes tied together and fell down, Right. There are a variety of things that can happen there, but it's a lot better than counting a dozen or so plays where they happen to pick up a sack. And that's if they had a great year. So pressures are a good thing. That's a good number to look at. And it's become more and more available. There are a few sites. If you just look up, you know, quarterback pressures, um, there are a few sites, whether they're using PFF's numbers, I'm not sure. There are a few sites that track that at this point. Now, one problem with that is, well, what is a pressure? Well, that's going to be a little bit different depending on who you talk to. Right, So there's some subjectivity to it, but I will take subjectivity in-depth analysis over sack counting all day. It's just so much more detailed. And another thing to look at that is, generally speaking, I only see this at Pro Football Focus, but they make those numbers pretty available on Twitter and that kind of stuff. Something to look up is is, is uh, pressure percentage. I don't know what they refer to it as. I chart this when I grade edge rushers. It's how many times did a guy did a guy get pressure in comparison to how often he actually rushed the quarterback. Now I focus more on wins and losses because sometimes you can have a you can make a great play and win and beat your blocker, but the ball came out in 1.5 seconds, so you didn't collect a pressure. So I prefer wins and losses. Like that's, you know, I do that with all players. That's what I'll go to my grave doing is wins and losses because I think that's the best way to focus on what a player did. But if you're going with numbers that are available, uh, pressure percentage, that tells you how, okay, did he get pressure on, you know, 7% of the times you rush the passer or 15%? And what that allows you to do is differentiate between guys that have different roles. You might, uh, even if you're looking at pressures, you might look at one guy and say, well, he had 50 pressures and this other guy had 75 or this other guy had 60, say. And so he's clearly better. Well, then you find out that this other guy rushed the passer 150, 200 extra times. That tells you something. Now, you know, Justin Houston, for example, he dropped into coverage a little bit more. It, it got less as the season went along, but he dropped into coverage a little bit more than other guys. And additionally, he was asked to play contain more than other guys. And so those things matter. Those things matter. And so th- those are two things to look at. Um, with regards to tackles, a stat that I would find, and these are generally becoming more and more available as well, are stuffs and tackles for loss. Not a perfect system, but it allows you to see how many of those tackles were high-impact plays at least. Now, again, there's no substitute for film. It's still not perfect. You're still going to miss a lot of context, but if you look up one edge rusher and he had, the, let's say you got two edge rushers who both have about 55, 60 tackles and one of them has 10 stuffs and the other one has one, you can fairly safely assume that the guy with 10 stuffs is probably the guy to, the guy to watch. That's what I would say at least. People might people might disagree that maybe that's that's becoming a little too reliant on just a deeper box score, but generally speaking, you're going to be better off looking at those things. So again, pressure, pressure percentage, stuffs, tackles for loss, those are things that you can look at. And so there's one final aspect of this that I want to talk about, and then we'll take our final break, and then we're gonna I'm gonna answer a ton of mailbag questions because you guys deserve it waiting so patiently for a week. Um, So the last question that I asked John and something that I want to address too is, if someone at home wants to try and get a handle on a player during broadcast viewing, what's something they can look for? Understanding that most people aren't going to purchase all 22 and rewatch games while charting. So my thing is, your average fan who's not going to waste 10 hours of his day 
breaking down film. What can you watch for from your couch? What can you watch for from the stands if you want to keep an eye on a player for a few for a few snaps? So John replied, scouting traits of a player is big, but even understanding alignment, stance, down and distance, offensive formation, are they chipping the edge? Are they aligning a tight end to force a wider path to the quarterback, etc. is really important. If you're looking for crucial player traits, I think burst off the ball, bend and flexibility and hand usage are the big three. Um, So here's what's great about John is he makes it really clear, and I think this is important, that considering assignment and alignment and situation are important engaging a player. Yeah, I referenced Justin Houston playing contain, right? One thing that I have consistently found over the course of three or four years, or actually, no, not quite that long, ever since Houston signed that really big contract, and that's when people kind of started getting down on him when then he got hurt and all this stuff. People consistently have tweeted me or messaged me or emailed me saying, you know, Houston's a bum. I mean, you know, go look at the play in the fourth quarter. He just got completely stonewalled by a tight end. Plays like that. I would say a good half the time at least. Because sometimes he just gets stonewalled. That happens to literally every player in the NFL. And so that's that's fine. That's going to happen sometimes. If you think that a guy getting stonewalled multiple times in a game means he's terrible, I would just tell you to watch any edge rusher. They are going to lose more than, more than they win, or at least as much as they win. That's just the nature of playing edge rusher. If that weren't the case, you'd have guys who are collecting you know 70 sacks in a season. There's a reason that doesn't happen. Be that as it may, the major mistake I see in that is people, I'll watch the play and I'll see that he's not trying to rush, that he's playing contain. And people don't pay attention to that. You've got to pay attention to what has happened previously in the game. Has the quarterback been winning with his legs? Has, you know what, what has gone on? What alignment are the Chiefs in? Do they have other guys blitzing? Is he dropping back into a shallow zone but just staying in contact with the tight end? Is he, is he supposed to be on man coverage of the tight end so he's just playing contain while keeping an eye on the tight end? These are things that you need to pay attention to. Now, those are tough to know, especially in the moment, but it is helpful to at least consider those things while you watch. And then the player traits that he talked about, burst off the ball, huge one. Bend and flexibility, that's a huge one too. And what that means is just think Derek Thomas, since this is a Chiefs podcast. Guys that can that can bend, they've got the ankle and hip flexibility to where they can get themselves at a 45 degree angle or if you're Derek Thomas practically horizontal running around the edge to where you can corner as fast as possible just think of how you 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 best you know you best pivot around a corner the the lower you can get and the more bend you can get the faster you can corner and the faster you can corner obviously the shorter distance you take to a quarterback the faster you can get to him that's a huge deal. That's what separates a lot of good pass rushers. D. Ford hasn't shown a lot of bend around the edge. Um, he showed a little bit in recent years. Um, he seems to have worked on it, but that was mostly more of a technique thing where he's finally learned to lean on tackles a little bit and uh, account for the fact that he just does not have flexible hips or ankles. That's what keeps him from being a great pass rusher, in my opinion, with that incredible first step because when a guy stays upright, they're easy to push Wide, and that's what happens to him. Uh, hand usage, I, I, we're Chiefs fans. You've watched Tom Bahali. You've watched Justin Houston. You know how important hand usage is. See if they're winning the, the battle there. The other thing I would say you look for is strength. Easy, quick one to look for. Whether it's a bull rush or a long arm where they use their inside just one arm to, to drive them through around the and then go get around the edge. Those are things that you can watch for just watching the tape. Do they have the strength to knock offensive linemen back? Do they have the, the strength to, 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 to win the leverage point when you've got a runner coming their way? Do they have the strength to hold up at the point of attack and flash their helmet to either side, forcing the running back to hesitate and make a choice before shedding the blocker? Strength is an important one, and that's one where Justin Houston is at the very top of the league. He is much stronger than most outside linebackers. That's how he often wins. So, And the key thing I would say with all of these is consistency. Every single player you watch will have some good plays. There are no bums in the NFL. Every one of these guys is incredibly good at football. They've been stars at every level they've ever played. So they're going to occasionally flash. What I always tell people, even Christian Ponder made great throws occasionally. It's not about whether they can do it occasionally. It's consistency. So say like with 
to know Passanio, that's what I'm looking for for him. Can he show consistency? Because he's shown a little bend. He's shown a little strength. Can he do it consistently? Those are the big things to watch for while you're watching a game. Is it happening more than once or twice? So hopefully these tips will allow you to to free yourself from box score analysis. It is, I'm not going to say it's the worst thing in football, but it's close. And so hopefully I've been able to walk you through something that took me years to learn. Okay, I, I was pure box score guy when I started writing for Arrowhead Pride. And the more I delved into this, the more I watched film, the more I talked to people way smarter than me, the more I realized the stuff I was missing. And that's why I do what I currently do is because I want you to see what it took me years to learn. I want you to figure that out in 10 minutes. And I'm sure you all can because you're all much smarter than me and it took me forever to learn. But this is the, these are the reasons that box score analysis are bad with edge rushers. It's the reason you just can't use it, the reason it doesn't work. So hopefully we've walked through that enough and given you some tools to use. All right, we're going to take one more break and then it's time to take on as many of your mailbag questions as humanly possible and then I'm going to call it a day and we'll uh we'll we'll, we'll move forward. All right. It's mailbag time. As always, I've got my customary drink of water here. Oh man, that's good water. That's going to hurt Pete's head that I want him to leave that in there. Oh well, what are you going to do? So, all right. Mailbag time. As always, I appreciate how responsive you guys were. Um, There's a ton of them here. I'm just going to start with the first response and work my way down. Um, So I'll do my very best, guys. Uh, Mr. C. David, my good buddy Charlie, he brought me to a couple Chiefs games. Really good dude. Um, He said, I know you say you... Oh, man, this is a non-football question. I know you say you try not to block people, but how many total people have you blocked on your Twitter account. Um, Without looking, uh, I want to say very, very few, but you know what? This is an interesting enough question that maybe I'll I'll really take a look here depending on whether my my computer lets me. Eh, It's not going to let me do it quickly enough. Um, I would say as far as blocked goes, it's under 10 for sure. I try to mute people because eh, if people still want to read my work, that's fine. I don't really care. Um, and then I don't have to deal with them if they're muted. And so I'll be honest with you. If you're listening to this and I literally never respond to you and you're rude to me consistently, I probably muted you a while ago. Um, so no offense, but I just don't need that in my life. I only block people when I genuinely don't want them to even have a chance to see what I do because they're bad people or if someone because I've had a few times where people have DM'd me that there's someone who's like stalking me in my mentions and they're just like constantly trying to take over everything to say horrible things or whatever those people will get blocked too Um, but generally speaking I don't like blocking people I I just as soon uh, you know be nice to everyone although I will say the bigger this account gets and the bigger this gets the harder that becomes so if I ever bite your head off for a completely innocuous question please know it's just because sometimes people are very mean to me. All right. Uh, Bailey, Bailey Hale, H-E-I-L, Hale? We'll go with Hale. Hale? Anyway, how well do you think Alex does in Washington? I think Alex will do very well in Washington. I do. I, I think Jay Gruden's got a good offensive system. I think he'll do well there. Um, I hope he does. Uh, I don't think he'll do as well as Mahomes does in Kansas City, though. So, uh, Sean Ryan asked, how realistic is it the Chiefs land their needs of an outside linebacker, inside linebacker, safety, and cornerback in the draft? I'm not sure I see the need for an inside linebacker. I'm very comfortable with Hitchens and Ragland. Um, Outside linebacker, I'm doubting they go that direction. I think they like Passanio. But maybe. We'll see. Uh, Safety and cornerback, I think, are where we're going to see the most movement. Um, Dave asks, off topic from football, but is there a reason why you use Beethoven's fifth? Um, partly because I really like it. I, I like the idea of a cold open and then having the music and then, you know, doing the real opening. That's how I wanted to do it. And Beethoven's fifth just kind of works there, right? You know, it's dramatic and stuff. Plus, classical music doesn't have copyright on it, so you don't have to deal with all that kind of stuff. Uh, I had two questions in a row asking about uh, about the Chiefs' new offensive coordinator. Who I always butcher his name. Uh, Biennemi, I, I can't remember exactly how to pronounce it. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm a hack. Um, asking like if he'll have any influence on how the offense looks or how he does in general. I'm not sure how much of an influence he'll have on the general... Um, 
structure of the offense. This is Andy Reid's offense. It always has been. It always will be. Um, so I don't think he'll have a big influence on the structure. I think where you might see his influence is in the game-by-game play calling. I think you might see a little more, a little more smash mouth, a little more, you know, you know, grind him into the dust. He seems like the kind of guy that, you know, now that they're on the ground, let's kick him in the throat. And I'm hoping to see more of that. Um, I had another question here from from Sean Ryan, who I I, I guess will I guess I'll take two. He says, what are the chances the Chiefs trade Kelsey or Houston for draft picks considering no one saw that Peters getting traded? I don't think those are related to the other, to be honest. Nothing would surprise me at this point, um, but I don't see those two getting traded. Kelsey in particular. Kelsey, if you look at his contract, he's a great deal at this point. Uh, Justin asks, what do you think a developed Passanio would look like and how would it affect this year's defense? Um, Passanio, he just needs to up his consistency and comfort at the position. You can tell he's thinking out there. He's a good athlete, but he looks a little wooden, and that's accentuated by the fact that you can tell he's thinking. He improved a lot as the year went along. Um, him stepping forward because he's strong, he's fast, he's got, got great length, um, he can do a lot of things if he, he's got a little bend around the edge for such a huge guy, that's unusual. That would be a huge bonus for this year's defense. That would be, I mean, it would really make me feel a lot better about everything. And I mean, anytime you can get a good edge rusher in there, it's a huge deal, especially because he could be an upgrade on run defense, which was something that really hurt them last year. Neil Davidson asks... Are you still more concerned about safety than corner? Safety is the best secondary player. Murray has a chance to improve. Sorensen back in his role where he did well. Depth. Corner is a good to great guy. Solid guy. Starter. No depth. Despite your argument, Neil, yes, I'm still more worried about safety than corner. Everything you're saying about Murray and Sorensen revolves around hope. I think Steven Nelson is a better corner than Murray or Sorensen are safeties. And I don't think it's even close. I think Amerson is better than what we've seen from Sorensen or Murray so far. And with both of them, you're kind of, it's a hope thing. But I guess Amerson, to me, has been a better player throughout his career than those two. Um, and I have a lot of confidence in Kendall Fuller. I like I like Barry. Obviously, I love Barry. I think he'll be great, but I'm still concerned about safety depth. Um, I am concerned about corner depth, though, for sure. And I really think that that's probably the direction they're going to go early. It wouldn't surprise me to see Veach trade up. He seems like a, I like this guy, I'm going to grab him kind of GM. Uh, Landon Small says, with all the running back depth, is there any way Casey is trying to use Ware's trade collateral to move up in the draft? Um, or is the running back position too easy to find develop talent? I don't see him as trade bait. He was injured last year. I don't think there'd be any value there, to be perfectly honest. Um, Lucas Dugan asks, with Peter, oh, by the way, I mean, I love Ware, and I hope he gets healthy because I think he's a very good running back. But... I just don't think there's trade value there because of the position. Like you alluded to, Landon, it's too easy to find and develop talent. Uh, Lucas Dugan asks, with Peters gone, how do you think Sutton will change the defensive scheme? Do you think that will make the defense immediately better since we won't have to scheme around Peters? I don't think he was necessarily scheming around Peters, and so the short answer would be, I don't know. I think you are going to see more press coverage across the board. We'll see how it works out. Um, You cannot lose an all-pro player without some hiccups unless Fuller is just as good as I think he's going to be. Um, then hopefully they can at least tread water there. But he is not the the turnover machine that Marcus Peters is. So it should change some things. Whether they'll be better, I have no idea. I think they'll be better than they were last year, but that's more of a sum of the parts issue. I think they would be even better if Marcus Peters were around. I don't think it's possible to trade a guy of his caliber and be better automatically. Uh, wrong Josh Prisco. <laughs> That's a wonderful uh, fake account. That reminds me of Evil Seth Kaiser, which that's one you should check out if you get some time. There's like an Evil Seth Kaiser on Twitter. And no, anyone who's asking, no, that's not me. I got enough going on. Um, wrong Josh Briscoe asks, why should we go after Dez immediately? Oh, stop it. Um, I Look, if they sign Dez for peanuts, fair enough, because I do still think he can win at certain things, but uh, he doesn't do what I think the Chiefs need out of their receivers. Um, and so unless he came very cheap, I wouldn't be interested. Timothy asks, Fortnite or PUBG? I have no idea what either of those things are. Maybe I'm revealing my age. Jared Polifka asks, how many years do you think Reed has before he retires? Does he get a Super Bowl win in that time? I think Reed is at least around for another six or seven years, depending on exactly how things go with Pat Mahomes. 
I think if Pat Mahomes develops into what we're hoping he can be, I think Reed sticks around for most of his career. And yes, I think he gets a Super Bowl win in that time. Uh, Brian Cheney asks, which backs make the 53? I have no idea at this point. I really don't. They've signed, you know, Kerwin Williams and Damian Williams. They've got West. They've got Ware. They've got Hunt. There are solid running backs in that group. Both of those Williams guys can play. Kerwin Williams, I think, is a better runner than West or Damian Williams. And so I think he's a legitimate threat because he's a solid receiver as well. He's a pretty decent running back. And that just goes to show it is not hard to get a decent running back on your roster in the NFL. It's not. And so especially, I mean, there's a deep draft too. And so I have no idea who's going to make the roster. Maybe they carry five and have them play a bunch of special teams. I just know that's a great position to have redundancy at because we've all seen years. I remember when we had... Jamal Charles and Spencer Ware and uh, Charkandrick West. And we were like, man, we've got this set. And then Charles got hurt. Then Ware got hurt. And then West was playing nicked up. And it was just, it's unbelievable how quick that can happen. Steven asks, does D Ford remain on the team after 2019? Um, there were a few other questions, but I, I can't answer five questions in one question, Stephen. All due respect. So does D Ford remain on the team after 2019? I sincerely doubt it. And it's actually 2018. This is his uh, his his option year. And so I would be surprised if he remained on the team. Yes, just because he still is a limited player. He's still rough against the run. He's good in backside pursuit, but teams can run right at him. And he's a good but not great pass rusher because he's limited in what he can do. Now we'll see. I'm hoping he just breaks out this year and has 15 sacks. But even then, I would just assume they let him go. I really would. Get the comp pick because you can't pay big money for guys with only one year production, generally speaking, and guys that you know are somewhat limited unless he shows this year those limitations are fixed, like he somehow learns to get bent around the edge and has more of a plethora of pass rush moves. Tim asks, is Hill or Watkins better in your mind? Oh, crap. Um, I answered this question, I think it was on Josh Briscoe's show, um, a little while ago. Here, here's what I'll say. Uh, Tyreek Hill was obviously much more productive last season, and Tyreek Hill is the more explosive of the two because Tyreek Hill is the most explosive player in the NFL. Overall, if I were to base it off their 2017 film, and, I, and I'm going to hedge this here, okay? Keeping in mind that Tyreek Hill is a second, was a second-year player last year, second-year playing receiver, and his route running improved a great deal from his rookie year to last year, and he was talking about a lot last year, I fully anticipate his route running to be improved again this year because he was okay at it last year, but he just wasn't good or great at route running. Um, He was relying still a little bit on natural gifts to win on a lot of different routes. So this isn't like a, whoa, who's going to be better in 2018? The 2017 film that impressed me slightly more was Sammy Watkins. And I know that's crazy because Tyreek Hill had a lot more production. I just thought Watkins' film was that impressive. He's not as explosive, but he did demonstrate better hands. That uh, From what I could see, he snatches the ball away better. He ran, runs significantly better routes. I will say, I mean, they're both good at adjusting to the ball. And so there, there's, there's just a lot going on there. I would say Watkins' film was slightly better. But I would not surprise me one bit if Hill overtook him this year. Um, Keith McLean, really good guy. Hi, Keith. How will fans who have been ruined by elite media film analysis or by elite film analysis deal with the box score analysts who promote the national media tropes that player X is no good because their fantasy numbers aren't high from week to week despite their important role in an offense? So what he's basically asking is when are fans going to turn on talking heads who don't put in the work? I'm not sure if they ever will, honestly. There are still, for, uh, you know, most people that follow me follow me for a specific reason, but anytime my work gets a little more national exposure um, and blows up and fans of other teams see it, especially casual fans, I see a ton of box score analysis. And I really think it's going to take years for that to change because I don't think your common fan really wants to change his mind about stuff. I really don't. We, we, we always say, you know, among attorneys, it's almost impossible to change someone's mind. That's why opening arguments are so important because once someone's made up their mind, that's their opinion and by God, they're going to stick to it. And so I don't think you're going to see fans turn on a lot of guys. I do think you are seeing a little bit more of it, but it's going to be a vocal minority for a while. Uh, Jake Prosser says over under 30.5 TD passes for Mahomes this season over. Uh, Seth, hey Seth, I think I've said this before, but you've got a great name. Since the Chiefs have not dipped into the free agent pool of safety yet, is this because they're happy with the current players or they're eating 
or they are waiting, I think, to see how things shake out during the draft and post-draft cuts. I have no idea, but I just want them to sign Trey Boston already or Eric Reed or Vicaro. Just a safety. Just sign someone. Just sign someone. Um, I had a bunch of questions about running back, but I've already addressed that to a certain extent. Um, here's here's one that I think is kind of interesting. This is uh, it's at Cardivich. I don't know. That's Chief Two Six Five. What is a concern you have with Mahomes? Something a little troubling. Anything? What's worst case scenario? If I were to say there was anything that troubled me about Mahomes, one is that he seems too good to be true. He says all the right stuff. Um, he seems to have all the physical gifts. The coaches seem to love him. He seems smart. He improved his footwork. I mean, watch the preseason game versus Week 17. He, he seems to work really hard. He talks about, you know, well, I see Alex, I saw Alex Smith arrived every day at 6, so I realized that's what a quarterback does. So he started arriving every day at 6. Got his own routine in. I mean, he seems too good to be true, which always makes you wonder when that other shoe is going to drop. The other thing is... Um, I want. I think there could be an over-reliance on his arm and making those off-platform throws. Now, he talks about fixing it, and I think he, by and large, doesn't do it nearly as much as the narrative is. But my one concern is he will make a few too many throws like that per game, kind of like a Case Keenum type stuff. Now, he's got twice the arm of Case Keenum, but he still won't get away with it all the time. So I'm hoping to see him, like say that almost interception to Demetrius Harris uh, in the Week 17 game. He made the right read. Harris was wide open and with no safety help over the top, but he didn't reset his feet first because he trusted his arm just a bit too much. And that was like a 50-yard throw while he's running. How do he reset his feet? That's a touchdown. So I want to see a little a little more, a little better with that. Uh, Glenn Maratia. I'm sorry, Glenn. I've known you for like 10 years, and I can't pronounce your last name. Sell out in the draft and have a video game level offense with a patchwork defense, or leave the offense alone and try to get the defense mediocre. I say juice the offense to the max. Make do with what we got now on defense. Um... I'm just my only issue with that is I'm not sure where you're going to improve on the offense with guys that you grab in the draft other than maybe left guard if one of the really good guards falls. I they've got really good players across the board on offense. I want them to sell out, get the defense to average to above average and because I think being bounced like that is the best way to win a Super Bowl. Um let's see there's a there, there's one last question. Harry's dad asks, how many defensive starters can we get out of this draft? I say one is a must and two would be ideal. If they can get one defensive starter out of the draft, they're doing pretty well. If they get two, they're doing really well. It's just tough to find immediate defensive starters, at least quality ones, in the draft. And so, you know, there's a difference between a guy who starts and a guy who should start, right? A plus player. All right. That's what I've got for you guys. I appreciate you listening to this extra long episode of The Chief in the North. Hopefully that makes up for the... Uh, the lack of an episode last week. Um, thanks for you know reviewing and, and subscribing. We are on Google Play now. We are on iTunes. All that stuff. I appreciate you guys being a part of this. It's just such a privilege to bring uh, Chiefs information to you guys, and especially to to have you guys join me in the war against box score analysis. It's just a real, real privilege. I appreciate you listening. This has been the Chief of the North with Minnesota Chiefs fan, and I will talk to you guys next week.